10.11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for all sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind, I will write them. He then says, after their sins and their lawless deeds, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, couple, about a month ago, I taught on verses 11 through 13 when I was teaching in Hebrews chapter 8. So I'm not going to go back over those things tonight. And then verses 17 and 18, Pastor Kevin just covered exhaustively. And so that leaves us with 14, 15, and 16. So I want to share a couple things, have a prayer, and we'll go home. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I want to look at these things. In verse 14, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And we see here the accomplishments of Calvary. Many times people misunderstand. We think of those who built great empires, the Alexander the Greats, the great conquerors of history as being people who accomplished much. But our Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary accomplished more than anyone else in all of history in establishing our salvation. The accomplishments of Calvary here in verse 14, he says, For by one offering, one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, perfected. The Greek tense here is perfect indicative. Now that doesn't mean anything to you unless it's explained perfect means an action that is completed in the past with continuing results. In other words, what Jesus Christ accomplished on Calvary 2,000 years ago has uh, accomplished our salvation, but that great sacrifice and that great offering has ongoing results in our lives even right now. That Calvary, the sacrifice of Christ, is working in us right now. And it has continuing results. Indicative means assertion of fact. That this is reality. He says, for all time, there is no end to the consequences and the results of Calvary. That we are sanctified. Maybe some of your translations say they're being sanctified, which is a more accurate translation. 
For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You and I are saved, but we are in the process of sanctification. And God is working in us to perfect us and to transform us more and more like Christ. Now, one of the problems with that is oftentimes he accomplishes this through very difficult times and through very trying circumstances and through the experience of suffering. But God is working in us to sanctify us, to transform us. I jotted down that we don't need to complete our salvation we merely cooperate with him who is bringing about our sanctification. In other words, walk with Christ and allow him to lead us and to work in us, to perfect us. And the time in our lives when we feel like we're at our very worst and we are the biggest losers on the face of the earth is many times the, the opportunities where God is working in us the greatest. And he is committed to our sanctification. The Apostle Paul in Philippians said, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God's working in us. And so we are cooperating with what he is doing in our lives. Now, one of the things that I did is I formed expectations as to what God would do in my life. And I need to report to you, probably none of those expectations have been accomplished. He had a much better idea, but a much more difficult route. And the writer of Hebrews goes on here in verse 15, and he says, The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, and then in verse 16, he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, 33. And <clears throat> the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. How does he do that? Through the scriptures. And what I think is fascinating here is that many people view Old Testament scriptures as passe or even obsolete. And as you read through the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews establishes New Testament doctrine using Old Testament scriptures. And so the whole Bible is the word of God. To understand the New Testament, you must understand the revelation of the Old Testament. And I would say especially the book of Genesis. Because if you don't understand Genesis, you don't understand the condition of man. In fact, we're going to go right straight to Genesis in a couple minutes. If you don't understand that, you don't understand what's been accomplished by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And many turn the New Testament into this nice little friendly story where God loves everybody and everything's okay and it's all going to work out. 
but the New Testament takes a hard line on sin and gives the radical solution for the condition of sin. And so he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, 33 in verse 16. <clears throat> he did this also more to a greater extent in chapter 8. But here, just the 33rd verse. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind, I will write them. And so he speaks of a covenant that God will make. And he, incidentally, this is borne out not just in Jeremiah. And as if you go back to Jeremiah 31, you read this incredible thing that God is going to do where every person is going to be responsible for their entering into the covenant and for their salvation. It's not that just because we're born a Jew or into a family, we're automatically saved, but we personally opt in through a covenant condition of God. And so to understand the nature of the covenant, we have to understand the nature of the problem that the covenant deals with. And I'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Clear back to the foundation of everything that we believe. <clears throat> In Genesis 3, verse 7, <clears throat> we see the condition of man after he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis 3, 7, we read that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covering. The problem is shame entered into the human condition. Disgrace. We see that there um, is self-righteousness. They tried to cover their problem with fig leaves, superficial covering. In verses 8 and 9, we see their separation, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? That there is this separation where God walked with man and communicated with man and communed with man but suddenly man is hiding from that relationship in his shame fourthly we see that there is fear verse 10 and he said i heard the sound of thee in the garden i was afraid because i was naked and i hid myself there is fear there is guilt in verse 11 he said who told you that you were naked have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then finally, there is irresponsibility in verse 12. He said, it's woman's fault. It's somebody else's fault that I am this way. And here we see pop psychology. <coughs> I messed up because my parents messed me up. I messed up because my spouse didn't wash my socks right. 
It's somebody else's fault. And so we see the nature of the problem that man has entered into sin and he is corrupted to the core. And so there needs to be a solution. First of all, the solution is not fig leaves to just make him look better. And many people today are all caught up in the outward appearance. They're going and getting their wrinkles stretched and, you know, their fat sucked and all of these things done, you know, in order to look better. Always worried about how we look instead of how we are. And so the solution is not fig leaves. So don't go home and put fig leaves on your face. It's not going to help. God loves you just the way we are, you are and so do we. Secondly, the Mosaic Law is not the solution. It was only a temporary covering. The solution needs to be complete restoration, overhauling. And if you've ever seen Chip Foose's program, they bring a junker in that is just an ugly piece of garbage and they completely take it apart and refurbish it and build a whole new engine and drive line and everything and include all kinds of electronics and completely transform that which was on its way to the junkyard. That's what human beings need, overhauled. Not a couple paint chips filled, not a wrinkle taken out of the fender, but we need completely overhauled and that is made possible only through the gospel of Jesus Christ, this covenant. That which was lost and damaged in Eden, the human heart and the human mind, need God to completely transform us. And in verse 16 here, we see that God writes his word, his law, Upon our heart, he says, I will put my law upon their hearts and upon their mind, I will write them. Now the heart, the Greek word is cardia. And like many words used in the New Testament, they have a common meaning, meaning and then they have the biblical meaning. And the cardia, of course, is the organ that's pumping blood in your body right now. But the heart that he's referring to here is the very center of our being. Who we are. And the mind, the center of our thought. And he says here, this is the covenant. And I just want to remind you what a covenant is. A covenant is not a contract. It's not a mutual agreement between equals. Kind of like if you do this, I will do this. And for this price, this will be done, and this is the way it is, unless anything changes, and then we'll renegotiate. It's not a contract between equals. A covenant is a gracious offer by the superior to the inferior. It's a gracious offer that God has established through his wisdom and his grace to offer to us, and we can take it or we can leave it. But we cannot negotiate it. And the condition of the covenant 
is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God's son came to this earth. He lived his life sinless, obeyed the father perfectly. In no way did he succumb to temptation or step into sin. And yet he went to Calvary and took upon himself the consequences of our sin and died for you and me and then rose from the dead. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And without the understanding and the acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for the human condition. As Pastor Kevin prayed at the beginning of our gathering here tonight, many people are trying to change the political environment of our country, but what needs changed is the people of our country. And the church is the agent through which that change will either take place or not take place. Either this world and this society will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ or this world and this society will not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, but without the gospel, there is no hope. When the church abandons the gospel, it ceases to be the church. It's a nice little club. There's no regeneration, there's no salvation, there's no transformation, there's no restoration. It's just a religious institution lost in the quagmire of relativism, either stampeding off to liberalism or to legalism or reciting some liturgy where we say the right things but don't believe any of them, and we just go through the motions. James or John MacArthur wrote, I guess it's about 20 years ago now, a book called Ashamed of the Gospel. And he points out that how much of the American church is embarrassed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we wonder why the American church is failing and why our society is sliding into the abyss. The result of salvation is restoration and salvation does not take place apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of God in the human heart and the human mind. Have you ever wondered why people think the way they think? It's because they don't have the mind of Christ. Their thinking hasn't been transformed. And so he says here in verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind, I will write them. God's laws, God's word, written into the very character of our being. The word of the law represents the word of God, but it also represents the moral character of God from creation. When God created man, he said, let us make him in our image or in our likeness. And through sin, that image has been marred and lost and it's restored only through the gospel of Jesus Christ.
I want to look at a couple passages with you in Matthew chapter 22, the words of Jesus. Just to illustrate these things and the transformation through the gospel. In Matthew 22, 33, (laughs) Matthew 22, 37, Jesus is speaking. And a lawyer came to him with a question to test him. And he said, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus responds to him and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depend the whole law and the prophets. Do you know what the law and the prophets are? It's the whole Old Testament. That's the description of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And so the fulfillment of all the law and prophets, all of the Old Testament, is in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and soul, and some verses add strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Now there are three things to consider concerning this great command. Number one, we cannot do this on our own. If you think you can do this on your own, let me introduce you to a couple of my neighbors. Or maybe I could meet a couple of yours. We can't do this on our own. Secondly, this is the fulfillment of the whole law. And thirdly, this is non-negotiable. Jesus said, you shall or you must. Now, if we can't do it, and we must do it, we need help, amen? And only God can accomplish this through us, through the transformation of our heart and our mind by supernatural power and by the work of his grace. Here, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, and please forgive me for jumping around. I would not do this except that it's well worth our time. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I, I turn to it to read it just so you can see one little phrase. Deuteronomy 6, 5. <clears throat> Jesus is quoting this verse. Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. Verse 9, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, what he's saying is that you're going to take these commands and superficially apply them to you so you can't forget them. But once again, they're like the fig leaves. They're just attached to us. They're not part of us. And so consequently, 
when we come to the new covenant, God doesn't, you know, have sticky notes and stick scriptures all over us. He writes it upon our heart and upon our mind. And he inscribes it into us. The new covenant is the supernatural inscription of God's word upon the human heart and the human mind. It transforms who we are and how we think. I just want to share here kind of in conclusion. When people say in conclusion, it means 15 minutes. I became a Christian when I was 11 years old. A young lad, pastor of the church that my mother grew up in, at Easter time had a pastor's class. And mom said, why don't you go to the pastor's class? I said, what's that? She said, just go and find out. Little room, sat down with a bunch of other kids and he came in. In about four weeks, he just worked through sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I accepted Jesus Christ into my life as Lord and Savior. For years, I went to church. I didn't have a Bible. As I grew older, I went off to college. There were drugs everywhere and opportunities of moral compromise, but for some reason... That really did not interest me, and I had a sense that if I entered into that, I would lose something of great importance in my life. It would result in a huge loss in the future of my life, in the relationship with my wife, and I knew that that was something that was not for me. How I knew that, I did not know. I had a sense of purpose. And as a junior in college for Christmas, I got a Bible. And I told my folks about what I was doing. I would finish my studies and turn on the radio and listen to religious programming. Have you listened to religious programming? I was listening to this Catholic program from Cincinnati, Ohio. And the nuns would get together and do about a half hour of Hail Marys and I kind of scratched my head and I didn't understand what that was about. And after that came Gardner Ted Armstrong. And he was teaching through the book of Revelation and here I am a Christian but I didn't have a Bible at this time and I was listening to this programming and he was telling telling us what the Bible said in the book of Revelation. I was sitting there thinking, I don't think the Bible really says that or means that. I went next door to the Wesley Foundation, a Methodist campus organization, and asked them if they had a Bible. And they dug through the stacks and clear in the back, they found a Bible. (laughs) I took it over to my room and I sat down that night. First book of the Bible I read was the book of Revelation. Lo and behold, it didn't say what Garner Ted Armstrong said it was saying. I didn't understand it all, but I understood enough. And I got my own Bible and I began to read it. And I can remember reading through the scriptures and I would close the Bible and I would kiss it and I would say, 
God, this is just so wonderful. Where has this been? How could I have possibly missed this? Now, here's the point. I had become a Christian, and God had inscribed his word upon my heart and my mind and transformed me. And when I met with the word of God, I recognized truth from error, and I had an appetite for the word that I did not even know was there until I opened the pages. Needless to say, I've been reading it ever since. The work that God did in me. Christianity is not about being religious. Christianity is about being a subject of God, even better than Chip Foose, coming into our lives and overhauling us and transforming us from the inside out, imparting his word into our heart and upon our heart and inscribing his word into our minds so that we live and think and breathe like Jesus Christ and allow him to do that work. On Sunday morning, Pastor Kevin shared this, and I hope you caught it. He was talking about the Apostle Paul, and he shared four things about the Apostle Paul. He said Paul was servant-minded. He was salvation-minded. He was spirit-minded, and he was scripture-minded. Now, how did that happen? Because the Apostle Paul studied under Gamaliel, one of the finest scholars of the Old Testament scriptures, and came out of Gamaliel's classroom and became a great persecutor of the church. And Jesus finally cried out to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was doing the very opposite of what he would have done if he understood those scriptures that he studied. And through his encounter with Jesus Christ, he was transformed and God's word was poured into his heart and inscribed upon his mind and he became the great emissary of Jesus Christ and the great founder of the church. And if you're here this evening and you're just religious, I want to encourage you encourage you to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To allow Jesus Christ to come into your heart and your life and save you and restore you to renew you that you may become a new person from the inside out and allow Christ to do that work. I thank God for his word that he has instilled in my life and in your life. And I am so blessed by the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ, people who know Christ, people who know his word, people who are being transformed. We're not perfect, but we are certainly in process. I want to pray with you, and then we will take some questions. Father, we just thank you for this time. I thank you for my brothers and sisters with whom I shall serve as long as we have the privilege of being alive upon this earth and with whom we will praise and worship you through all of eternity. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout this world. We thank you for what you are doing in our lives right now. 
And Father, we pray for this nation. We pray for the church in the United States of America that she may be unashamed of the gospel, that she may testify to the glory of Jesus Christ, that the gospel, the power of God unto salvation may be proclaimed to every man, woman, boy, and girl. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lowell. That was awesome. I love your title, Overhauling 